Welcome to Church Sound Podcast. I'm your host, Samantha. And I'm James. We're audio engineers, authors, and educators. With a special focus on houses of worship. And on this episode, bass guitar. Finally. Oh, oh my yeah. gosh. Yeah. It's, <laughs> I'm really surprised it's taken us this long, but this is this is gonna be a good one. <laughs> yeah, I was I was looking back through our topic list and I was like, we haven't done the bass? <laughs> so it's 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 high time now. Sold. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, okay. All right. Before we uh, hop in, because we're ex- both excited, let's do our sponsor messages. Uh, so first up, uh, Prime Acoustic, and they help the message be heard, and they remove excessive reverb in your house of worship. We also want to thank Digico. Their new Quantum 338 and other house of worship solutions are available at digico.biz. And finally, Electro Voice, who have been a leader in church sound since the beginning and today offers the industry's largest portfolio of loudspeaker system solutions for houses of worship of all sizes. Elevate the audio experience with Electro Voice. Whew. Okay, all right, now we can, we got that out of the okay. way. Let's, <laughs> <laughs> no, we thank them very, very much, the sponsors. We very much appreciate them. Yes, uh, we do. But also, we're, this is a good topic today, so <laughs> everybody strap in. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, but, uh, also how, how have you been? Like, it's, I swear James, like we record and then I enter some kind of time portal and then I just fall out when we start recording. So how have you been? How's, oh, how is the recording going? The classes? How's that? Uh, the course is wrapped up with filming. We're just doing final edits, mm-hmm. uh, which again, well, feels like it a, takes forever. Yeah. You'd found something had happened right to the audio. Oh, I mean, there, there were, a few, well, I think just one time where I hit record on everything except the audio recorder. Ah. Uh, cause I've got like, you know, two cameras and sometimes I'm recording the iPad, sometimes recording my computer screen. Mm-hmm. And then the audio device is separate from that because my camera is not expensive enough to have high quality audio enough mm-hmm. for me. So it's that one button that either I pressed or didn't press long enough, and I had to redo a few lessons. But mm. we got it there, and it's nice and you know trimmed out. I'm excited about this. I have worksheets for it, which that, Ooh. as the educator in me, I'm like, oh, yes, now we've reached a new level. Absolutely. If I've got fill-in-the-blank worksheets so that people can follow along and not zone out or get on their phone if they're like looking for the next thing. Oh, man, so, that's awesome. Because I, I mean – Honestly, I'm the worst at it. I get super distracted when I'm watching some mm-hmm. training, something or other. So anything to help people stay engaged and have something to take with them. That's what I'm after. Mm. I might um, ask you after recording, I'm about to do a big shoot at the end of next month and might look for a couple of tips. Uh, I've only done recordings uh, in with like other people professionally helping me. <laughs> So I just could show up and do it. And then I've also done it like just by myself with a very, very simple setup. And I need to, this project that I'm going to do is somewhere in the middle. Right. Uh, and I, I may tap you and be like, okay, well, what are some things that I can do or, or look out for? Uh, maybe we like, I don't know, maybe we'll do like a, a video or something episode of this. That would be weird. Uh, <laughs> but just a couple of tips, just so when I go in there, um, the gentleman that's helping me is sensational, but we're both not video people. So right. we're going to be, the content's going to be there, but we just want to try to make it as, you know, as nice as possible with, yeah. with what we'll have. So, so anyway. ask another non-video person. <laughs> <laughs> Who's already doing it though. Yeah. You, yes. You'll know exactly I'm, how to dumb it down for me. <laughs> yeah. 
<laughs> That's right. Uh, okay. Yeah. My, I mean, I don't know how long it took me to figure out how to keep my camera in focus because I would pre-focus it mm. and then I would hit the shutter button to start recording, but that actually auto-focuses. Oh my and gosh, when you're yeah. behind the camera, then it auto-focuses on the back wall. Oh, good So Lord, yeah. then you're out of focus the whole time. Ah. And you can't fix that in post. Yeah. So, yeah, no, you so can't. So I'll, 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 I'll at least steer you clear of that mistake. Preach. Appreciate that. Yeah. Uh, but uh, end of summer, right? Uh, the yeah. garden was successful. We also talked about gardening last time. So uh, how many heaps of extra things do you have? Oh, well, we have been canning a lot. Mm-hmm. Uh, so our canning shelves are so getting fuller. Yeah. Uh, I care not to say. Uh, I might get overwhelmed if I think about it. But <laughs> lots of tomatoes. We got a bunch of peaches from out in Kansas mm-hmm. and canned a bunch of those too it's just been yeah it's been a good summer for harvesting so good yeah so what's going what's going on with you what's uh what's new in the kansas side of kansas city uh it's good this week's been as you've known it's been lovely weather oh yeah i've been like working outside um just on my laptop doing a ton of writing so much script writing um doing a lot of education focus um getting ready for some big projects lots of really fun uh, PR stories and marketing and um, new websites and stuff like that. Been working on that and um, just kind of. I, I was supposed to go to uh, Ecuador actually this week, but uh, unfortunately, um, right before their uh, their presidential uh, election is next week, and at the very end of last week, one of their candidates was assassinated, and oh. so right, and so it ended up being it's like a, a very big thing. Uh, over there, obviously, and yeah. there's a, a lot of civil unrest. They think the Mexican cartel is involved. So, anyways, I'm not. I did not go to Ecuador this week. <laughs> uh, I'm kind of thankful for that. Yeah, we postponed that and said let's <laughs> let this cool off for a couple months and see what happens. Just something about um, sent just being down there. I, I wouldn't totally be by my by myself, but until I, I would be by myself until I got to the hotel, and so there is a lot of time. <laughs> From when yeah. I land, it was like a 50 minute drive. And I was like, well, yeah, let's just wait. Let's just wait. It's fine. It's fine. Safety first. Yes. Safety first. I can't, I can't come back or visit anybody else if I'm not here anymore. So, <laughs> uh, yeah. So that's going on. Um, but fall's kicking off. I love fall. It is my supreme time. It's my favorite season. So um, we've got, it's seemingly, hopefully the last heat wave coming up this next week. Uh, until the next one. Until, until the next one. <laughs> I'll be in Atlanta for it. Will it will actually be cooler? <laughs> so, uh, yeah. uh, only ninety seven. So, uh, <laughs> so that'll be fine. Yeah. But yeah, life life is good over here. Just got some good stuff going on. The school year just kicked off as we're recording this, like this week. It, um, I know you guys. Um, it, it's not quite homeschooling, right? But it's a, a version of homeschooling. Yeah. So. We do most of our subjects at home. We do a co-op once a week. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're adding some online curriculum as well this year. So mm. taking a little bit of the load off of yeah. me and Julie. So do they do it like a, all year or do you guys take summers off? Or? Uh, we take busy times off. So mm. we'll, you know, when it's crazy in the garden or with, you know, farmer's markets or whatever else, yeah. you know, we'll, we'll take that time off. But then we just hustle the rest of the time. Yeah. I think it would be good to do like almost year round with, I think what you're doing is like perfect because then you don't have the chance to forget so much 
going yeah. between uh, years or different subjects, uh, you yeah, can always uh, kind of stay on top of it. Summer, is it called attrition? I don't know if that's the right word, but the the stuff they lose over the summer is a real yeah. thing. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. So yay fall. Yay. <laughs> okay. All right. Um, we have a word of the day. Yes, we do. It is the Fletcher-Munson curve. And it just goes to show that if you invent something, you get to name it after yourself. So tell me what you think about the Fletcher-Munson curve. Yeah, the Fletcher-Munson curve, it sounds extremely science-y, and it kind of is. And when you Google it, it looks like, like, ah, graph. Um, (laughs) But the Fletcher-Munson curve is essentially a representation on how... Uh, our ears over very generalized how we humans hear and uh, how well we hear certain frequencies over how loud they are. So uh, to, that is to say, <clears throat> we hear um, it takes very little um, energy for us to hear like one one K or something or like, you know, around like where a baby cries. We're very sensitive to that region, but we're very uh not sensitive. What's the opposite of sensitive? <laughs> I'm having a moment here. Uh, <laughs> insensitive. Insensitive. We're very <laughs> insensitive to like lower frequencies. So we can actually, we're not damaged by lower frequencies uh, very much. So um, you can really, it takes a lot of actually for low frequencies for us to experience it. So that's a Fletcher Munson curve in my eyes. Yeah. So it's, it's the way that our ears perceive different frequencies relative to one another, but the, the line as it goes up and down through all the different frequencies, that's how our ear hears the same perceived level across all of those frequencies. So like, you know, for you know, 1K to be heard as loud as 100 hertz, at a certain SPL, you might have to have like 15 dB more mm-hmm. at 100 hertz than you do at 1K to perceive it. Mm-hmm. That relationship changes as you go up or down in level. Mm-hmm. So the louder it is, kind of the flatter or the less yeah. difference of, you know, low end to high mids there is. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, if you're in a studio monitoring environment, uh, the way you set the level of your monitors is going to change the tonal balance that you try to achieve. Mm. So let's say you're mixing broadcast and your mixes sound a little bit thin. If your acoustics aren't canceling out all the low end, which is a thing, you could tend to get your mixes a little bit fuller by turning your monitors down and then making the balance feel right at that level. Mm-hmm. So it's fascinating. It's it's really interesting to, to understand. It also shows why we need so much more energy uh, to reproduce low frequencies with our yeah. subwoofers. You know, like, why do I need, you know, 15 double 18 subs? Well, to move that much air to make it as loud as 1K, we need, you know, X amount more energy uh, to be able to do that. So mm. that's that's why uh, one reason why low end is trickier. But the the brilliance of it is that if we could perceive low frequencies at the same level as we do those higher frequencies, every like little gust of wind or little rumble from something being like set down on something else, we wouldn't be able to differentiate that from the sounds that have more meaning or, mm-hmm. you know, like, uh, you know, someone speaking or the sibilance in their voice. Yeah. You know, that would be, that would get tricky if all of the uh, hearing was linear to the amount of energy produced. 
Yeah. I mean, think like, so I mentioned like a baby crying or you think about like leaves rustling. If we're um, in a jungle or we're hunting or whatever, we can feel the low vibration. So that's great. Uh, we'll be able to feel that from pretty relatively far away. Um, but we might need to hear the rustling of something much closer to us. So it's better that we're more sensitive to those kinds of frequencies as opposed to, you know, let's just, let's just imagine it's a gigantic T-Rex. Okay. (laughs) (laughs) Hearing it stomp will be, uh, we don't need to hear it. We'll either be able to see it because it'll be near us. (laughs) Right. Or if we can feel it from much farther away, that's that's better for us it's all like it's all very interesting and that we've developed this way this has just happened and who knows like uh the invention of like earbuds and all this like close listening uh is i wonder if that will shift how humans perceive things because we're also like not really hunting the same so i wonder (laughs) i wonder how it'll change it, it could be. But either way, you need to know that we're more sensitive to those upper mid frequencies mm-hmm. and that low frequencies take a lot more energy. Oh, yeah. Yep. So speaking of low frequencies, Heck yeah. let's jump into the bass guitar. Woo! So we're both bass players. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if so you didn't we're, catch on to that yet. We're going to try to keep this succinct and not go down too many bunny trails. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But it, this is a lot of fun to talk about. It is, yeah. And I, for some reason, it's like a trope at this point that like sound techs play bass uh, on our team like um at Allen and Heath US there's one, two, three, there's like four of us that play bass out of a team of like maybe seven or eight of us like we're, this is like an this is there's a lot of us like a weird amount of us play bass and then when I run into people like in the wild it's like oh yeah I'm a bass player or oh I'm covering for the sound tech today because they're playing bass. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. It's kind of, you know, to, to play playing bass and running sound kind of go hand in hand only because you're kind of having to see the big picture and link up a bunch of different things. Mm-hmm. You know, the bass players having to match the timing of the kick drum and the chords from the guitars and keyboards. So there's a lot more like, uh, wide field of view that the bass players like to take on typically. And it's simple, right? So you don't have to be like amazing virtuoso and have a, you know, ginormous pedal board full of mm-hmm. stuff in order to like play bass. You really just need a bass. Yeah. I think the bar so, for entry is lower. So, oh yeah. Yeah, for sure. And you know, it feels good. You know, it's it just, it's a great instrument to play. And when the, when the bass drops, I mean, there's all those memes, but <laughs> yeah, it's a real thing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, one of um, our tech support people, um, they were talking, uh, they're all like musicians themselves, obviously. So um, I was talking with one of them and they made a comment of like, oh, yeah, well, uh, bass is like really easy to add. You know, I, I never really give it more than like two notes anyways. And I messaged it. I was like, I'm crazy offended right now. <laughs> <laughs> But he's not totally wrong. <laughs> it's really just an emotional response from me. But yep. to your point, yeah, it's it is not it it is easy to be not great uh, at bass and get through it and still have fun and not be worried about I mean six strings and a bunch of chords and notes and stuff that you don't necessarily understand. If you know just first position your notes. Um, 
or even just can read tabs like those are with base. It's much e- uh, much easier to sight read um, with that. For sure. But base is also really difficult to get right, like on the mixing side. So yes. on the playing side, you know, basically it is difficult to get the timing just right. So it's mm-hmm. not like, you know, bass is a walk in the park. It's much easier, but great bass playing while simple has to be very precise. Yeah. Could you uh, actually go into like why, like what makes nice bass or like why we like it? Uh, before we start to talk about like um, acoustics or anything, could you talk about like what is so um, human about uh, our connection to these low frequencies? Yeah. So the, to me, the base, it kind of is like the, the foundation of all of the chords. So all the sonic stuff that's going on in the mid range that tells us like the interesting stuff, like what, like, is this a major or a minor chord or, uh, you know, is there dissonance or is it, you know, very simple and sparse? All that really just gets like turned up a notch when we have a solid root to the chord. It kind of tells us how everything else relates to it harmonically. Mm -hmm. So that's a really, you know, like when you think from the harmonic perspective, bass just fills it in and like makes everything sound better because it everything else sounds fuller because of the bass. Mm-hmm. On the kind of flip side of it, the low end that we perceive with our tactile selves or our person resonates uh, or even just hearing it, but when you really resonate with it, that does something and makes people feel like they're connected to the music. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and like that's that's what separates listening from on your TV to like listening on a big sound system mm. is like that that feeling of the bass really connects us and makes it feel like we're immersed in the music rather than the music is over there somewhere you know in front of us we are a part of it and it's surrounding us yeah. so I think that's that's one of the the reasons why we like it the bass guitar specifically in the low end kind of you know, happy rock music, R&B, you know, mm-hmm. most musical styles that we're finding in church today, uh, gospel, all that. The kick drum is the punch of the low end mm-hmm. and the bass is the sustain of the low end. Mm-hmm. Like if you can get that, like get your mind around that connection and you're not trying to get the kick drum to sustain forever, unless it's an 808 and there's time for that. <laughs> but the kick drum is the punch. And when the bass sustains just right and you get that level relationship right, that's when we really feel and connect to the music and the pulse of the music. Mm. So when the bass playing's timing is really good and it's locked into that kick drum or playing against it, we'll we'll let, you know, Scott's bass lessons describe all that for you on YouTube. <laughs> uh you know, when we when that relationship is right and we're feeling it the right way and the groove is there, it makes people move. Mm. I mean, it's almost it's semi involuntary and it taps into like the basal part of our brains of expectation and feeling and timing and all that. And we want to move sympathetically when the bass and the kick drum are locked in really tight. Yeah. It bass is really in between percussion and like melody it lives right between there and so it's definitely this uh sense of filling filling the space as you said i also wonder if it's there's an attraction to it because there are very few humans that can 
make the kinds of sounds that bass instruments can. It's just so low. And for the most part, most humans like cannot voice those low frequencies. So we're kind of attracted to it in this like almost like this like ethereal way of like, ooh, this is so foreign, but it's like vibrating our bodies in a very particular way. Like you could I think you could really go into like a physiological response to these frequencies, the 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 uh certain you know cycles per second of vibrations in the air molecules around us. Like it, you could really break it down into how our, how we respond to it. But I think it's just easier at the end of the day to say like who doesn't? It, it, bass guitar is one of those things or just bass in general is uh, when it's not there, that's when you notice it. Yep. It's more, cons- well, it's not always more conspicuous in its mm-hmm. absence than in its presence, but at the bare minimum, it should be more conspicuous in its absence mm-hmm. than in its presence, mm-hmm. which basically means you notice it more when it's gone than when it's there, then it's probably about right. Unless you're trying to draw attention to it, which yeah. by all means is a fantastic time, but it's not always appropriate. Yeah. So yeah, you got to be, you got to be appropriate. Yeah. Okay. So sorry, back to why it's difficult to get this right. Okay. So the, the, one of the difficulties is just that different people have personal preferences for how loud the bass should be, right? Some congregants, uh, might prefer to have their bass kind of like an upright bass that's far away. Right. Uh, you know, if they're, if they're like more leaning toward classical or orchestral type sounds in mm-hmm. their personal listening preferences. Uh, it just means they're getting, they're not really going to want to feel the bass. Uh, whereas other people like crave it and have this like internal itch where there's not quite a, ever enough mm-hmm. and they just need to feel it more and more in order to really, really get it. Uh, so that's, it's tricky to get right because of personal preference And that's why it's important, we've talked about this in past episodes, to get with your leadership team and know, hey, what should this be like for our people? Mm -hmm. And a lot of times your leader can intuit that. They're not going to be able to like say technically, well, the base at 85 dBA SPL should be about this level. (laughs) They're not going to nerd out, but if you give them some options, like should people really feel it? Should people kind of feel it? Or should it be kind of like perceived but not felt or do most people really just want it all off? You know, like, you know, very much more conspicuous in its absence than its presence. If you can find out that from your leadership team and get some direction there, that's going to go a long way into helping you nail, uh, hit the target where, you know, it's a clear target. Mm-hmm. And just base frequencies. And I believe we've also talked about this in previous episodes when we're talking about room acoustics and loudspeaker configurations and uh, reproduction, it is uh, notoriously hard to get the low end under control. That's true also in like studio mixing and things like that. Um, I think in I think in broadcast you can really just go for it. I think that's that might be your best shot is <laughs> doing broadcast. Like, well, it's live, so it can be not quite perfect, uh, but also you can like crank it really hard. Anyways, <laughs> with when we're talking about room acoustics and loudspeaker reproduction, what's interesting about low frequencies is that not only do they contain so much energy, uh, we also only have a certain amount of control over them because our speakers only get so large. The general rule of thumb is that whatever the diameter of your speaker is, you can 
uh, direct sound waves whose frequencies are uh, are twice that diameter. So, uh, like, let, I'm just making up numbers here, so do not quote me on this. Like, let's say you have a uh, a 20 inch speaker. Uh, that means that you can have direction. Uh, over the reproduced sound waves. So I can tell it, I can point it in a general direction and it will stay in that general direction. Frequencies that are 40 inches in length and smaller. Uh, so in other words, 40 inches in length and the pitch gets higher from there. And so uh, our speakers, you know, okay, so the lowest frequency we can technically hear is 20 hertz. Uh, and that's like 50 feet or something ridiculous and like so nobody's making um a 25 foot uh speaker <laughs> so <laughs> um so a lot of it is just very uh, omnidirectional that's what happens a lot of time is when we have subs they tend they tend to be omnidirectional in other words no matter where you're standing at in a sub it always feels like it's kind of coming from the same from the same place or it's kind of going everywhere equally and that's totally fine. There have been some amazing systems engineers that have created some very uh, clever ways to have control, more control over it. Things that involve, we'll have to get like, you know, a, a full-fledged systems engineer on here. But that'll basically use like multiple subs that will be timed or delayed so that they all fire at once and they have a certain cancellation behind them. So it becomes more directional. I mean, it gets very nerdy very quickly. But the whole point being, we have very little control over low frequencies. And so your room configuration, how your room is set up, will have a tremendous effect on how you perceive that low end. I've been in plenty of sanctuaries uh, where it's like, it's a bit, it's like shell shaped almost. Can't think of the, the proper word for it. Um, but it ends up being like a real, almost like a cavern for these low frequencies you know, where they'll bounce off the sidewalls and they all start getting running into each other and it gets nuts. And so the low end, it'll have like a really nice point where it's like, okay, I'm hearing it. And if literally, if you push it a few more decibels up, it's suddenly like out of control. Uh, and you can feel it cause it gets super, super muddy. If your low end is out of control and you may not know it, it's, if it feels like you're having to take out a lot of kick and a lot of bass, like way more than you think you might need to, and there's still a lot of it, that's a good sign that your subs might be out of control or are out of balance. Um, or you might need to reconfigure some things. Uh, or if there's low end feedback, which I think not a lot of people are familiar with. They don't, it doesn't sound the same as normal feedback in the higher registers. It just sounds, it's just incredibly muddy is the best way to describe it. Yeah. It's like, is there a truck right outside or yeah. what, what's going on? Yeah. There? Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, the sub configure, and this is like, I, I kind of doubt too many people listening to this should have the open invitation to just go start rearranging their sub configurations. <laughs> um, yeah. and it also involves like cabling and all this other stuff. Uh, I think it's really just better if we understand this is a thing and to keep it kind of locked in our variables toolbox of like when something goes wrong or we need to troubleshoot to remember, oh, yeah, this is a thing. Or when they're finding their balance uh, in their mix, which I argue is where the magic really lies is, in, is when we balance our inputs. 
when we're working on that to keep that in mind as well, uh, to find that sweet spot of balance between low end and the rest of the register. Yeah. And I think another important consideration when we're talking about mixing to get the base just right, what that really translates to is that the different notes are going to have different amplitudes mm. in different spots. Yeah. Right. So there might be a place where like the, the A, the open A string on the bass resonates a whole lot in one spot. And then a few seats over, it's almost unintelligible, mm-hmm. right? You can't even perceive it. Right. So when somebody sa- you know, comes up and says, man, the bass is just ripping me apart. Well, it might be that they're sitting in a spot where the bass is extremely pronounced right there. Mm-hmm. And it might be that a few seats away, you know, keeps them in their same section of choice, but doesn't have that one frequency that builds up. So understanding and like kind of listening to different bass lines and bass notes in different spots of your room is going to give you an idea of, hey, how hard can I push it? How far can I go with this before somebody gets upset? Or kind of what's the the guardrails where I know, okay, if I push it and this frequency jumps out, where I am, it's going to be really bad over there. Mm-hmm. Having an idea of that is really going to help you mix bass much more uh, with more consideration for all the listeners in your room. And it's just one of the limitations you've got to deal with. Yeah. And I think when it comes to mixing bass guitar, period, it is about consistency. And you touched on it a little bit, James. Is like, I need this level to be consistent. And that can be the best bass players uh, in the world are extremely consistent in the level that they play with. So they don't have to hit their higher notes as hard, uh, as they hit some of their lower notes because of that Fletcher Munson curve. They know it's going to come through more anyways. Uh, and that's also why compressors are a very popular tool, not only, uh, in bass guitarists, like setups themselves, but when we're mixing them using compressors on a bass guitar makes all of the difference is using a compressor. Absolutely. You know, I, I tell people that vocals to sit on top of a a mix have to be compressed. You can't Mm -hmm. like get around that. Mm -hmm. But if I only had like two compressors and I had one vocalist, where would my other compressor be? First thing every time is the bass. Mm. So after all the vocals get compression, bass gets compression. If I've got limited gear, Although that's a rarer situation now, but that's the importance of it. Or if you're in a time crunch situation where you can't set up everything that you want to set up and you know, you're like, what do I put compression on? Go ahead and put compression on the base because when Mm -hmm. that level can stay more consistent, uh, then, you know, we can keep it at our target level and we're not chasing it around. So you're not, you know, like you get the kick in the base locked in they stay locked in. Mm. That's the the goal with compression. Yeah. But it's also easy to overdo it with compression on the bass because then um, it kind of feels binary, like either the bass mm-hmm. is on or off. Mm-hmm. It's like, we're not trying to get a switch here of like, you know, turn on the oscillator, turn off the oscillator. <laughs> yeah. You know, we, we want it to have some dynamics still. So don't go like really crazy with it, but you can compress the bass pretty heavily uh, and get away with it. Just mm-hmm. watch out for that, like that time when they play lightly in the the down section of an outro or a bridge or something, and it still comes through really strong. That yeah. might mean you know you've compressed 
a little too much needed to ease up that threshold some. Yeah. And I want to talk more about the actual like knob settings that we typically do with this yes. here just a little bit. But first, let's talk about just getting this set up. Just let's move backwards here. So okay. plugging the base in. <laughs> yes. <laughs> How do I get into the board? What is your typical? What do you like to do? Uh I mean, the, the two options are really an amp or a DI, but very rarely do I see amps on stage since so many stages are going quiet mm -hmm. or ampless. So a DI is my go-to, um, you know, way to get the bass into the system. Yeah. Now, I do like a little bit of some dirt or an option of dirt dynamically. So I mean like a overdrive or distortion type mm -hmm. pedal that kind of acts like an amp breaking up just to give it a little bit of more harmonic color in the overtones. I don't need it to be like, uh, you know, metal, super distortion, heavy, bright bass. Mm -hmm. But it can go a lot farther in that direction than you think or that you might want to listen to it by itself. But in the context of a rock style mix, the, some of that uh, overdrive or amp style circuit can sound good. So uh, pedals like the Tone Hammer are very popular because it feels dynamically when you dig into the bass a little bit more, it gets more dirt or grit on it. And that's a, a cool kind of thing. Uh, the uh, Dark Glass uh, oh, Microtubes, yeah. is yep. that what it's called? That's what I got. Yeah. <laughs> I have struck a chord. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that's a good one too. Um I kind of like the circuits based on the Klon Centaur because it's got a clean mm -hmm. pass through mm -hmm. yeah, with it. Yeah, yeah. Um, you want to make sure that you preserve the super low lows if you're doing a distortion or or uh, overdrive pedal with that because some of those will put a high pass filter on the signal to keep it from being too flubby. Mm -hmm. And that's more for guitars. But on the bass, you want to retain all of that low end. So make sure that it's designed for the bass or works well for the bass. But that with a DI is like uh, my happy place. Oh, you know, yeah. There's other stuff you can do. There's creative things you can do. But um, if I had, you know, just a tone hammer, you know, going into a, a passive or active DI, you know, that's great. DIs do make a difference on tone. Mm -hmm. Um you know, it's a baby step. You know, it's not like, you know, night and day, like, oh my goodness, this bass is totally different because we switched DIs. It's like, oh, okay. You know, it's, it's like a little shift in flavor rather than like a mm -hmm. game changer, you know, like you know, totally yeah. different. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I go direct most of the time. Some bass players like to have an amp on stage if there's monitor wedges so that the monitor wedge doesn't have to carry their bass for them mm -hmm. to hear themselves. Mm -hmm. Um but again, you've got to be careful because that low end is not going to stop at the front end of the stage. You know, it's going to keep on going. Yeah. So you just have to be careful that that level is not so loud that it's messing with, you know, the front of house mix. Yeah. Yep. DIs are pretty much um, the gold standard. If you have a bass, you should be going in direct input or have a DI box. Um, yes, they, as James said, there's different flavors for different ones, but any DI is better than no DI, uh, in my opinion. And uh, if the bass player has like a nice like cab setup, I and I have and I have access to a, a large diaphragm condenser mic, so a big honk and heavy one. It's it has to be that it has to have a huge diaphragm in order to get it. Um, I will do that, but I will still always get the DI. Uh, but for the most part, yes, I'm a, I'm right in there with you. Is a DI um, if they've got like 
a nice like amp head like I've got the dark glass um, <laughs> <laughs> where it's got I have like total control of over uh, some distortion and some compression that is on board there and I also have a clean out so I'll just feed them with both of those and then I can play with it and mix and blend depending on the style of music uh, or the kind of tone we're aiming for that week or maybe we're experimenting with some things I'll I really like having two bass channels the same reason I also like having two kick channels so I can have like a really like um low end or a really dirty like compressed or distorted version of it and then I can mix and blend those together to find the perfect blend of like punch and clarity I do the exact same thing also with my vocals where I intentionally with inputs that are super clean uh, I like duplicating it and making the second one either, like I said, like dirty or distorted, uh, overly compressed or in, with the uh, with vocals. I really love putting uh, my vocals on a core through a chorus effect. Uh, and then um, I'll like blend that in. It's like my it's my favorite vocal trick. Uh, thank you, Jim Yak. Um, that I'll just blend in that enough just so you can't really hear it. But suddenly they're just like really the vocals are really sitting on top, but, uh, in regards to bass guitar, you know, Hey, more channels. If you have more channels, you have more options. <laughs> so it's true. It's very true. Yeah. Uh, you said you like a large diaphragm condenser mic. Mm -hmm. Did you like the large diaphragm dynamic mics like a beta 52 or an electro voice RE 20 or three twenty and um, things like that? Or you, do you really ooh, the RE20, appreciate I really like a lot. Yeah. Is that a diaphragm? Or excuse me, <laughs> is that dynamic? <laughs> yeah, it's dynamic. Oh, I thought it was. I thought it was a condenser. Okay, yeah. In that case, yeah, I don't like the Beta Fifty Two, but I really like the RE Twenty yeah. um, on it. That's why I, I keep trying to talk to Electra Voice to see if we can <laughs> get something <laughs> like that. Wink. Since you were here from the beginning, yeah. You know. <laughs> uh, I I love that. I've used that, especially the RE Twenty. I've put that on. Upright bases, bass amps, like all, those are all great. Yes. Um, the condens to that point, yes. Condensers you have to be a little bit more careful with. Um, it's just what, however big of a diaphragm you can get, go with that. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So once we've got it in the board and we've turned up our preamp to the appropriate level, uh, let's talk about the high pass filter and EQ. Mm -hmm. What's your kind of go-to, like, do you have spots that you're listening for initially? Do you have like, I always st start with my high pass filter here. Mm -hmm. What's kind of your go-to with, with yeah. EQ points on the bass? Uh, so the, I, um, it depends on the style of music, but I tip most of the time, almost always, I'll let the bass sit lower than the kick drum. I'll let the kick drum sit just a little bit above the bass. So I'll uh, put my high pass filter because I always use that, uh, on my bass, but maybe at like uh, 40 or 50, um, much below that. And that's just, that's just a lot. It's just rumble anyways. Um, and then I'll put my high pass filter on my kick to be more like 70 and still let it have the chest thump, but I want the bass to really be sitting super low. Um, yeah. So my high pass filter, I'll set it like that. I'm relatively low, but still on. And then EQ wise, I really try not to EQ, um, guitars, bass guitar, regular guitars. Um, I, because it is such a, a sensitive sort of instrument where the person, the musician is like kind of making their, their sound. It's so personal. I try not to influence that too much. And I really only do it to 
to either make a little sonic space to fit in the mix with bass guitar. I, that might mean I put a little bit of 1K back in to get some of the plucking noise so I can get more of that. But that's really the extent. Or if it's a very muddy sounding bass, I'll cut uh, some of the mud out, some of the like, uh, you know, 200 or something like that, uh, get some of that mud out. But otherwise, I try, I try to do that. And the, what I, what I'm much more heavy handed on is the compression, which we'll talk about in a second. Yes. Yeah, I think I think it's important to note that the high pass filter is still important for low frequency instruments. And you might think like, oh, I don't want to get rid of any of the low end because I want all the low end. You know, like it, you you might be tempted to say, well, if low end is good, I want all of it, all the way down to twenty hertz. Uh, but by getting rid of the subharmonic frequencies or the frequencies that are like below where the note should be ringing. Getting rid of that actually makes those fundamental frequencies like tighter and mm. punchier. So yeah, the high pass filter, I start at like, you know, 38 or 40. Uh, you know, if somebody's got a five string bass and they're real and their bass and the subs really work down low, uh, I don't want to cut too much of that to mm-hmm. start. Uh, but yeah, you know, between there and 50 hertz is a good starting place. Some bass players have like an active EQ on their bass and they've cranked up the low end thinking like, well, more low end is better. Uh, but, but again, sometimes it can be too much compared to the proportion of what you need for the tones and the overtones. So, you know, a low shelf down there might actually be appropriate to get some of those upper, you know, like I call them upper mid frequencies on the bass. To me, upper mid frequencies on a bass are like 200 and 500. Right. You know, like, yeah. And top end on a bass is like, you know, 1K and above. It's just yeah. all of it. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so my kind of secret sauce in a low level context, right? So this is where the Fletcher Munson curve comes into play. When we're trying to trick people into feeling like the bass is really bigger than it is, uh, I will take a wide boost around 200 to try to get that warmth out into it and to make people think, oh, there's the bass without them having to feel the bass. Mm. Um, and so, you know, this is like a three dB boost at the most, you know, it's not a, a giant crank it type situation. Um, and then other times I find that bass players in in-ear monitors have themselves up so much and can hear so much detail from their bass that they are totally afraid of anything above like 200 Hertz. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they tend to like adjust their tone so that everything is gone above there. And yes, I do want to get rid of fret clang uh, if they're playing kind of sloppy and it doesn't fit the style. So I'll use a low pass filter to get rid of that kind of stuff all the way down to 2k or 1k if necessary. But if they're, if I'm really having trouble defining the notes, not just like the pluck or the pick attack or the finger noise on the, the string, but like the overtones of the notes, I might boost somewhere around like 500 Hertz Mm -hmm. and accompanied with a cut around 500 Hertz on the kick drum. That is kind of my puzzle piece EQ style for that is I'm, I'm looking for those overtones on the bass around 500 and I'm trying to cut them out of the kick drum around 500. Mm -hmm. And that opens up a lot more space for the bass to, to be clearer and, you know, it's not competing with the kick drum as much. So complementary EQ where you're cutting something on one instrument to make room for another instrument is a 
sometimes a preferred method to just boosting on oh, yeah. the initial instrument. Yeah, I, that's and that's part of the trick of that low end control is really scooching things out of the way uh, to make room for other stuff. Because when we're talking about low frequencies, not a lot of instruments can live in the low the low end um, without it becoming a muddled mess. So you yeah. really have to pick and choose who's getting which section of, of frequencies. Yeah, it's kind of like, you know, communist jokes aren't funny unless everybody gets it the same. <laughs> but with low frequencies, you know, we not everybody gets it the same. You know, you putting up your high pass filter higher on your guitars and keyboards makes more sonic room for the bass and its overtones. Mm -hmm. So as long as the guitars and keyboards don't get so thin that it's like, ugh, you can make a lot of room for them or a lot of room for the bass by pulling up the high pass filter on those mm -hmm. quite a bit. So you can do, you know, essentially, you know, very little or nothing to the bass in the EQ spectrum, but then just make room for it to live yeah. with the other instruments. Yeah. Yeah. So then we come to compression, which again, I say is where I'm heavy handed, where we could all be a little bit more heavy handed. And I really encourage us to find the too far point and then scooch it back some. So compression, as we mentioned earlier, it's about the whole idea of compression where a compressor in our signal is to help make the uh, very, um, I'm going to say that like high volume, high volume uh, notes or frequencies quieter. So we can make the really quiet parts of instrumentation a little bit louder. It's trying to create a little bit more uniformity um, throughout an instrument or its frequency spectrum, all of that. So uh, in other words, it's about having dynamic control. So um, personally, I think we both said like we're slapping a compressor on it out of the gate. Uh, if, if vocals first, and if you have a second one, <laughs> it's going on on the bass guitar. So uh, personally, I, I'm I'm just I'm just very heavy handed. I, I don't even I think it varies so much from player to player. I'm just like going in there and I'm like, uh, where with vocals, I might be like, okay, three to four decibels of compression on average. That's plenty. Uh, with bass guitar, I'm like, if we're hitting like seven or eight, like I don't even blink. No, that's a good starting place for me. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, the other thing compression does is not just fix things note to note, but it also helps the sustain of the instrument. Yes. So if somebody's playing whole notes, which... I feel like bass is one of the best instruments for like really feeling whole notes and like getting mm. satisfaction out of mm. it where they're just sustaining and it just feels good. Yeah, Compression helps the tail end of that come up. So, you know, we're not just you know, helping note to note sound even. We're pushing up the quieter parts of those notes as they stay there. So then at the end of a measure, excuse my phone. Uh, so then at the end of a measure, We've still got about the same level as we did at the very beginning. That makes it uh, that makes it feel a lot nicer, and it just makes it more consistent, right? Mm -hmm. um, again, you've gone too far if it's like you know just off and on, right? They they yeah. hit a note and it just stays on until they go, and then you've just pushed up noise. Right? You don't necessarily want to do that. But one thing that really opened my eyes for compression on bass is understanding the attack time yes, and that a fast attack time will kind of suck the low end out of the bass. Mm -hmm. Whereas a slow attack time will let that low end come through. Yeah. 
and I've heard it described in nerdy ways that I'm, I'm I don't know if I'm ready to repeat on a podcast <laughs> quite yet. Uh, but 20 milliseconds for the attack time for me is kind of the sweet spot. It's mm-hmm. like I get all the low end there. It still punches through a little bit, but I'm not missing. Like if they hit it or really dig in, I'm not getting big jumps or spikes in level on the initial attack there. Yeah. So that's kind of my go-to. If you're if you're overwhelmed by uh, by attack time and release time and all that, go to auto mode. <laughs> there is nothing wrong with auto mode on most compressors, and it does the attack time automatically. Like it's adapting to what kind of signal is coming in, and it'll do a a very good job most of the time in auto mode. Yeah, I was gonna say that that attack time is so key when we're at putting compressors on any dynamic instrument as in uh, a percussive instrument rather um, so drums and bass it's really really important to get that attack time correct because you want to let those initial transients come through that is the punch that's the clarity of note changes it's the it's it truly is the percussiveness is in that first transient and so you don't want to chop that off um, immediately let that through and then basically have soon after that have this nice slow burn to help that sustain, to help it have your release time kind of a uh, ease off. Uh, but again, not like don't like just because uh, I've, I've heard some settings. I've done it myself where you put that release time where it's like turn it off super fast. So then it becomes this very strange pumping sensation where it sounds like the transient comes through the compressor kicks on so it gets really quiet and then the release time is like i'm done and then it releases it and so then it opens back up and it gets loud again so then it's like loud quiet loud quiet like it's it's a very strange it sounds very wrong (laughs) when you're hearing it so you want to be careful about that as well and i think we we had a a whole episode on compressors right where we were going through uh, your wonderful book um, and talking about like some of the starting points and where to go with that. Yeah. Yeah. Or did and I make that memory up? Like, No, I, I'm pretty <laughs> sure we talked about that. Okay. Uh, yeah. Anytime you're experiencing pumping on the compressor, try slowing down the attack time. Mm-hmm. Or it might also be that your threshold is too low, right? You've gone a little bit beyond what that, uh, the envelope of the sound itself and the attack and release time of the compressor when they're not working right together, you can either slow down the attack time or speed up the, sorry, slow down the release time, speed up the attack time, mm. maybe, maybe slowing it down is going to help. Uh, but, you know, raising the threshold some so that you're getting less gain reduction can be really helpful too. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And then when you're compressing, you also have that makeup gain knob. So if, you, if it feels like I'm compressing a lot, but it's so quiet now, I have to work so much harder. It's okay. Leave your fader where it was at um, and just use the makeup gain to basically put it back where it was before. Um, then you should be golden. Then you really get the experience of what the compressor sound like sounds like as opposed to just it's making it quieter. That like Just use the makeup gain, put it back to where it was uh, on your meter, and then it should feel like, okay, this is what it sounds like. Also, yes. then you can A-B it. You can punch it in and out. Um, so then there's not a level difference and you can truly hear what the compressor is doing. Uh, to the signal so yes and coming full circle this is why that process is important is the fletcher munson curve right when things are quieter they don't sound less bassy so when it sounds louder or we've just increased the level we perceive more low end so we automatically think it's better Mm -hmm. so making sure that when you're a b testing your compression and we did 
I think we did an episode on A-B testing and kind of uh, how we, to, we talk about how it a lot. Yeah, like yes. with effects and EQ, everything. Yes. So make sure that you're not just making it louder to test it. You make sure that the average level is pretty close to the same when you're turning it on and turning it off. And that's the beauty of the, the makeup gain on the compression. Hmm. So making sure that that's there because you will perceive more low frequencies when it's louder. And so if you're tricking yourself, you know, and it's, oh man, I put on the compression and it's quieter and it's thinner and I don't like it. Well, just, you know, ride that uh, makeup gain back up and then think, okay, now I see that we're getting more sustain and now the notes mm -hmm. are, you know, more even and, and you can get back to your happy place. Yeah. Okay, we're at 52 minutes. So do we still want to hit pedals, coaching, and broadcast mix? I think we talked about pedals enough. Okay. Uh, you know, we, we touched on that. Mm -hmm. Coaching, uh, I think we just touch on that real quick and then, and then land the plane. Okay. All right. Yeah. So, Samantha, if you have a newer bass player and you can see that they're kind of green, Mm -hmm. Uh, they're, you know, not super confident. They're kind of like, Hey, I'm on the band. Uh, how do you coach them or what are some of the tips that, that you tell them to help you have a great mix? The thing that is, I, I, for me, we go back to consistency and it's trying to get them comfortable enough that they are, it, I, I try to get them to a headspace where it's like, even if you're hitting the wrong note hit the wrong note hard. Um, <laughs> and that, that is okay because when bass players get really shy and I've noticed this tremendously when I'm doing like jazz bands and stuff like that, especially if they're student jazz bands, the ba if the bass player is not feeling particularly confident, they really shy away from hitting it. And when you're super shy on the bass guitar, you lose all like percussiveness of it, you lose so much low end unless it's an open string. And then it's like really wonky and very inconsistent because your uh, fretted notes are weak, but then your open string is like kapow. And that's really hard to compensate for at the board. Uh, it's trying to get them comfortable. Like, Hey, it's okay. You sound great. I promise it's fine. When in doubt, just hit, you know, the notes as written. Don't worry about, um, hitting them exactly when you, when you're supposed to hit them. It's really, as long as you're hanging out in this, in this key, like you just do whatever, uh, and you'll, you'll be okay. But it's whatever minimum you have to hit to make you hit every note consistently do that. Even if it's one note, every like three bars and you hit that one note consistently every time. Brilliant. I love it. Uh, it's really just, and I know that especially because when I was younger, <clears throat> I wasn't, I wasn't always super confident about my playing and that has a, and now being a sound engineer, I know what a ridiculous effect that has on timbre of an instrument. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think the, the confidence and just the timing, like, okay, aim to hit right when the note should be. Don't like wait that millisecond to make sure that you're on the right chord. Like mm -hmm. just trust the chart, you know, trust, you know, what you practiced. And I, again, I would rather have somebody, hit confidently 90% of the time and hit a wrong note 10% of the time, mm -hmm. but do it confidently and like really pluck it, you know, don't just, mm -hmm. you know, don't just kind of let it ring, you know, like lift your finger off it so that it goes like, like I need you to like get into it. Yeah. Um, and if it clangs, I can take care of that, but I can't, 
add intensity in that other way. And there's just no amount of compression that can fix an inconsistent source. Yeah. And I can't like make you play sooner. Right. (laughs) I can't fix your timing from the soundboard. Yeah. Until we can bend the space time continuum. Right. You know, that's, that's out of. Yeah. Maybe you just delay everybody like 15 milliseconds and just compensate (laughs) it. Yeah. (laughs) That's a different kind of delay compensation. Yeah. Yeah. It's a, yeah. And that's, so at the beginning, we said the bar for entry for bass is very low, which is great. That being said, though, uh, the bar for like just being even moderate or a a super a very talented, very good bass player is much higher. The distance between entry level and the ne- like above mediocre the, is a very large chasm. Uh, unlike, say, like electric guitar or acoustic guitar, where the entry level is um, pretty high and getting t- from entry level to um, above mediocre, that's a much shorter distance than bass players who are entry level to above mediocre. That is a very large area because it comes down to all everything we just said, all of that nuance of like timing. And it's not even about like fanciness or amount of notes. That is so... That's the fun part you get to add later. Uh, yeah. It's like timing and being in the pocket. That That's and consistency. Those are your two things. Yeah. And fighting the boredom because mm-hmm. honestly, sometimes what you have to play is not exciting mm-hmm. and you have to fight off that like temptation to make it more fancy than it needs to be. Yeah. And perhaps beyond your skill level, which is one of my Achilles heels. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> because I'm bored. It's not because I'm like, you know, feeling adventurous. It's because, wow, I'm tired of playing these same three chords over and over mm-hmm. again. And it's not really changed the dynamics and I'm kind of itching now. And, yeah. But I don't really know how to do fills yeah. well enough. And maybe is this the appropriate time for a fill? Yeah. All that is going yeah. through your mind while you're playing and hopefully not yawning because i've yawned on stage before which Ooh, is yeah yeah which is bad and i <laughs> i felt terrible and i still feel terrible but <laughs> so i like i, I refuse to yawning. play open strings <laughs> my hand has to be on it <laughs> yeah. to <keep> me there. <laughs> yes. if you find this podcast helpful and want to help us reach more church sound techs could you just take a moment rate leave a review on this podcast wherever you might be listening Just a couple minutes goes a long way to help us reach even more church sound techs. Church Sound Podcast is part of the ProSound Web Podcast Network. I'm Samantha Potter. And I'm James Attaway. Thanks for tuning in and have an amazing service this week.